This podcast is looking for good deals on great food, but sometimes we need to grab a bite late at night. What are some of your favorite late night happy hours in the KC Metro? Text us at 816-601-4777. That's 816-601-4777. Standard texting rates apply. Up to date wants to know what you're talking about with family and friends. You can text UTD to 816-601-4777 to tell us. Again, 816-601-4777. Well, former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine John Herbst will be in town Wednesday evening for a conversation at the Central Library's Hellsberg Auditorium. Ambassador Herbst is a senior director of the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center and served for 31 years as a foreign service officer in the State Department. Well, Ambassador Herbst, welcome to Up to Date. It's great to have you on the show. My pleasure. What's your sense today, Ambassador? How long can the Ukrainians hold off the Russians based on what you're seeing? Well, as long as Western support for Ukraine does not diminish, Ukraine will eventually win this war, because this is a war of the Putin regime against the entire people of Ukraine. The Russian people, while they are not in any serious way protesting the war, they're not jumping to arms to help Putin fight this war. That's an extraordinary vulnerability for the Kremlin. Hmm. And as long as the substantial support from the U.S. and the European Union and our NATO allies continues, Ukraine will eventually win the war. Given that, would you like to see the U.S. step up its support of uh, the Ukrainians? And what would you like to see the country like to see us do on that front? I, I think that the amount of American support, which is substantial, is sufficient. We're providing about $55 billion a year in military and economic assistance. Um, and that is extremely important for American security and for American economic well-being. And I'll explain that in a minute, if you'd like. Sure. Uh, what, what we're not doing is sending the more advanced weapons that would lead to a major Ukrainian victory this year. And that is a serious mistake of American policy. Our policy is adequate, but not strong. And there's no reason why that policy could not be strong. What weapons would you like to see us send that would make such a big difference? There are three sets of weapons that I have in mind. It's not just me. There are many people who understand this. One, we should be sending more tanks and in a timely fashion. The American tanks that the Biden administration has decided to send will arrive in Ukraine in December or later. That's ridiculous. We could send those tanks now if we chose to. Two, more important than tanks, we should send what the military calls long-range fire. These are either artillery or rockets, which have a range of 300 kilometers. We are essentially restricting our uh, artillery support to Ukraine to systems which can only fire 85 kilometers. If we send systems with a 300-kilometer range, 180-mile range, they would A, stop the current Russian offensive in the east, and B, enable Ukraine to launch an offensive which would block the current supply lines, the, the land bridge from Russia to eastern Ukraine to Crimea. Hmm. And that would be a significant strategic defeat on the battlefield for Putin, as well as a, an enormous political problem for Putin at home. Finally, we should be sending advanced warcraft like the F-16s, which we are retiring by the many hundreds, to Ukraine. The administration has been too timid to send 
the longer range fires, the uh, F-16s and weapons, excuse me, tanks on a expeditious schedule to Ukraine. And that's a mistake. Well, clearly that the decision on the F-16s came just the other day. The administration, what ambassador, is just walking a tightrope here between supporting Ukraine and not escalating tensions with Russia to a point that there may be no uh, point of return there. The Biden administration has been weak on the issue of nuclear power, the uh, nuclear deterrent. They have let Putin intimidate them into not taking the decisions that are, in fact, in America's interest. Uh, we have said no multiple times to various weapon systems and then changed our mind. And in saying no, whether it was to sending the artillery, the high Mars, with a range of 85 kilometers, we refused to send for months as Ukrainians were dying in large numbers, and anti-ship missiles, uh, and the and patriots. We, we said no to all those systems because we were afraid of crossing Putin's red line. We sent them, and the red lines proved to be non-existent. Hmm. We have let Putin bluff us, and that is not behavior worthy of a superpower. We are a nuclear power, too. And in the past, during the Cold War, when the Russians had, were more dangerous than they are today, we did not let uh, Soviet nuclear bluffs prevent us from taking decisive action during the two Berlin crises in 1948 and 61 and during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Why do you think uh, President Biden is being as timid as he is, uh, to use your your uh, view of this? I think his advisors are not up to the uh, not up to snuff. You know, Trump had very peculiar ideas about Russia, which were not in America's interest. But he had a rock solid national security team. Um, I don't think we see the same strength, um, same wisdom, um, same. Well, strength and wisdom, I think, covers it in the Biden national security team. Ambassador, you're saying if we send these three sets of weapons to Ukraine, this war could end this year? Why are you so certain of that? Uh, I am not certain the war would end this year. I am certain if we sent those things in a timely fashion, if we got them to Ukraine, say by April, the Ukrainians would launch that successful counteroffensive, cut the land bridge to Crimea, force all Russian troops in the south of Crimea to retreat into Crimea, excuse me, the south of Ukraine on the mainland, to retreat in Crimea and give Putin an extraordinarily expensive logistical problem to supply his troops and, for that matter, his civilian infrastructure in Crimea. This would also be understood in Russia to be a massive military defeat and perhaps could force the Kremlin to take the decision to withdraw all of their troops or most of their troops, at least from mainland. Ukraine. But there's so much thinking here in the Western press that a cornered Putin is a, an extraordinarily dangerous Putin. Is Correct. that really where we want to be? See, Putin has done one thing really well in the run-up to his big invasion of Ukraine. He has spent 20 years cultivating the metaphor of Putin as the rat trapped in the corner who will inevitably strike forward, lash out. I'm telling you that that is an and a magnificent bluff, which sadly, because of that timidity in the administration, we have fallen for. So our press is full of this because the administration has been pushing this hard to justify their reluctance to send the weapons that eventually they send. So what you're hearing in the media is an echo of the timidity in the White House. Hmm. The Russians were talking about using nukes if, in fact, 
Ukraine continued its counteroffensive last fall into the four oblasts of Ukraine, which the Russians ridiculously annexed when they didn't control, right? Mm-hmm. The Ukrainian offensive continued. Putin did not use nukes. They, they suggested that Crimea, as a part of Russia, would be defended with all Russian national means of power. Yet the Ukrainians have struck into Crimea. Uh, the Russians did not use nukes. When it became clear that Finland and Sweden wanted to join NATO, the Russians said, well, we may need to use nukes to this. Well, the process is well along. The Russians have not used nukes. Hmm. We have seen Russian so-called red lines been crossed time after time. We've seen a retired Russian general, a guy named Bushinsky, say on Russian TV, the propaganda channel, of course we're not going to use nukes unless NATO, in fact, attacked Russia, meaning what everyone understands to be Russia, not Ukrainian land, which Russia says is Russia. You have an FS, a retired FSB officer, Dmitry Trainer, who wrote an article in December saying, you know, Putin's having trouble because he's relied on two things to win in Ukraine. One, his use of hydrocarbons, in other words, cutting off the supply of oil and gas to Europe. That has not turned out well. And he said, two, the nuclear bluff, which, of course, is just a bluff. Hmm. Are you calling him a paper tiger, in essence? No. I mean, look, Russia's conducting this truly dreadful war, um, killing Ukrainian civilians by the tens of thousands, even as the military cannot win on the battlefield. And he does have nukes, so we have to take it seriously. I am saying that the United States is a superpower, too. In fact, Russia's not a superpower. Our nuclear uh, arsenal is every bit as dangerous as Russia's. We've been able to deal with the greater threat from Moscow in Soviet days. Let's, let's remember our history. Let's we'll go back to traditional American nuclear deterrence practice, and we will stop deterring ourselves. There's been some speculation in this country, again, in the media, that if Russia loses this war, it will result in the breaking up of the Russian state uh, in a dramatic way. Do you see it that way? This is utterly amazing for me to see. We are now, we know, we've scared ourselves with the Russian nuclear threat. Now we're scaring ourselves with the notion that Russia will crack up. Uh, I can't rule out the fissuring of Russia as a result of Putin losing this war. But there is no history which supports this thesis. There is history which suggests when Russia loses foreign wars, there is some loosening of central power for a period of time before central power reasserts itself. There's also another um, scarecrow with which we have scared ourselves, the so-called Russia experts who are really just comfortable dealing with Putin's Russia, so they make up arguments to justify a policy of weakness, that Putin will be replaced by a true troglodyte. And Putin, under this theory, is not a true troglodyte. Hmm. Hey, if you look at the Russian war crimes in Ukraine, you'd have to say Putin is a Neanderthal. But B, Russian history suggests that when the power loses, when you know, the authorities in Russia lose an international war, there's a period of liberalization. We'll be back in just a minute. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. 
I'm visiting with former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, John Herbst. He'll be in town Wednesday evening for a conversation at the Central Library at the Helsberg Auditorium. So at this rate, then, if the Ukrainians won't give up their fight, Ambassador, and Putin refuses to lose, how do you see this war winding down? Let, let me explain something. We, you know, the, the money we're sending to Ukraine, the weapons we're sending to Ukraine, is not being done out of a, a, a benevolence. It's a hard calculation of what's in American interest. Putin's objectives go far beyond taking political control of Ukraine. In those two treaties that he sent to NATO and the United States in December of 2021, designed to avert the crisis of the big Russian invasion, he talked about establishing effective political control across the entire territory of the former Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. That includes three NATO allies of the United States. If Putin wins in Ukraine, we're going to have to worry about what he might do vis-a-vis our NATO allies. So the economical way to protect vital American interests is to help Ukraine defeat Putin. Now, answering your question specifically, so this is hard calculation of American interests, not not supporting Ukraine in the forever war against Russia. Mm Mm-hmm. If, if we give Ukraine the wherewithal, and they deliver this stunning blow to the Kremlin this year, that doesn't guarantee the war ends, but it could lead to an end of this war without a minimum. Russia returning to the area it controlled in Ukraine prior to the big invasion a year ago, and with everything else being on the table for negotiations. And if along with that, the United States and our NATO and European allies and partners continue to arm Ukraine. Russia has to think four times about renewing an invasion of Ukraine. And we keep the Russian danger to our NATO allies bottled up. Hmm. And, you know, the 55 or so billion a year we, we are sending to Ukraine is around 6% of our defense budget. With that, we have helped Ukraine destroy perhaps as much as 50% of Moscow's conventional military capacity. That's a very good investment in American security. Hmm. You know, you were the ambassador to Ukraine during the Orange Revolution. For listeners who might not be familiar with it, Ambassador, tell us what happened there. Well, this was the period in which it became clear how dangerous Putin's ambitions were. Uh, There was a government in Kiev, under President Kuchma, which the Russians found to be acceptable to their interests. Uh, that government faced, uh, they covered the country, Ukraine faced a presidential election in the fall of 2004. Kuchma had served two terms, so his time was up. His designated successor was then Prime Minister Yanukovych, mm-hmm. who was facing a bid from a more Western-minded leader, Viktor Yushchenko. And so with Moscow's help, the authorities in Ukraine conspired to steal that election. And sure enough, on the second round of voting in the election, they declared Yanukovych the victor, even though the real tallies did not show that. Hmm. That led to a massive outpouring of demonstrations in the streets of Kiev and other cities. And as a result of that outpouring, uh, the government in Ukraine was forced to hold a third round of elections under strict international supervision, which Yushchenko won. 
that whole period was called the Orange Revolution. Mm-hmm. And despite Putin's uh, overwhelming political efforts to promote fraud, he lost. And as a result of that, tensions between the United States and Russia began to grow significantly. And then Putin began to pursue a much more militant policy of revisionism that ultimately led to his war on Ukraine. I was going to say, so you're saying the Orange Revolution's legacy very much has to do with where things stand today. Well, yes, not just within Ukraine, but more broadly. Uh, Three years or two years after Yushchenko became president in Ukraine, much to Putin's unhappiness, he gave his famous speech at the Munich Security Conference, February of 2007, essentially declaring the West his enemy. Although there were hints of that well before that, he basically put his cards on the table then. That summer, Russia launched a massive cyber war against Estonia. And then a year later in Georgia, they they launched a conventional war against Georgia. Mm -hmm. And then the war against Ukraine began six years later. Now, I was going to ask you, Ambassador, for more than 50 years, the U.S. and Russia uh, have had some form of arms control agreement. Uh, You know, last week, Putin said he would suspend Russia's involvement. How big of a deal is this? What what should we make of it? Putin's decision last week to suspend, right, uh, participation was once again him playing the nuclear card because he's got he, he doesn't have a good outcome to his current dilemma. Again, his soldiers on the battlefield are not doing well, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're trying to take Bakhmut, and they may yet take it, a small quasi-strategic town or tactically relevant town in the north of Ukraine. But his goal was for him to take that two months, two and a half months ago. And so he's, you know, he's trying to give more life to the nuclear threat to intimidate us. That's why he made that announcement about the nuclear um, suspending their participation. But it's very, very weak. Um, step. And it's worth pointing out that he tried to play the nuclear card last week and utterly failed. Hmm. Uh, a couple of hours before Biden gave his address in Warsaw last Tuesday, he um, ordered a nuclear, uh, a nuclear intercontinental ballistic missile test. And the test failed, fizzled, a score underscoring that even his nuclear um, capacity may be not what he wants us to think it is. Hmm. He's had a very bad um, year since the big invasion. And last week was a real bad week for him. Does all this signify a new Cold War era here, Ambassador? The Russians have been the Cold War against the United States since Putin gave that Munich speech in 2007. We were too dull to see it. And only now, after the big invasion of last year, are we clearly seeing it. You look at the White House national security strategy, which had to be rewritten after the big Russian invasion. Even now, it doesn't clearly lay out the Russian danger to American national interests. Hmm. It's really amazing how slow we and our partners in the West have been to recognize this danger. Again, the policy we have right now is adequate. We're providing you know, major, major support, albeit not as sharp as it should be. But the president has failed to say explicitly, the way I just have, that Putin's war on Ukraine is, in fact, very dangerous to the United States. The policy kind of understands it, but he has not set it out in a way that would further rally American support for the policies we need. I'm wondering if you've relayed to the Biden administration your own thoughts about the need to be more aggressive right now. 
They know what, uh, uh, it's not just me, I'm part of a group of 20 or 30 who's pushing this. They clearly pay attention to us, but they, excuse me, they, they hear what we have to say, but their policies do not, or rather, let's put to say, the policies only slowly uh, reflect our recommendations. Yeah. How much uh, has the war affected the global economy so far, Ambassador, and what do you see happening on that front? Look, this has been very painful, obviously, for the Ukrainians who've lost 50% of their GDP. It's been painful for the Russians to a less, much lesser extent. It's been painful for many in Europe. It's also been painful because Moscow's trying to um, use Ukrainian grain as a hostage been been painful for the for the global south. The, the, the countries importing grain from from Ukraine. That's another reason for us to do more to end the war quickly by sending them the more sophisticated weapons mm-hmm. to uh, end the war so the economic pain for the rest of the world goes away. I'm wondering what your biggest challenge was when you were ambassador to Ukraine from 2003 to 2006. What do you recall from that time and what you were up against? When I went there, my principal objective was to make sure that Ukraine, to the extent I could, because I'm a foreigner, I'm not a Ukrainian, to make sure that Ukraine had a free and fair presidential election in 2004. Mm -hmm. Uh, We obviously failed on that score because they tried to steal the election. But it is true, things we did to prepare for that possibility led to a third round, which was at least fair, excuse me, at least free, if not fair. And the third round, the choice of the Ukrainian people, Yushchenko became president. So ultimately, we succeeded with that objective. Mm-hmm. But when we failed in terms of the initial uh, voting, right, when you had the fraudulent second round election, um, my objective then was to help overturn that so you'd have a free and fair vote. And also to prevent violence. So, in effect, our goals of having, you know, eventually a fair election, preventing violence in the streets, were achieved. Hmm. But not without lots of drama. Well, that's former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, John Herbst. Again, he'll be in town Wednesday evening for a conversation at the Central Library's Hellsberg Auditorium. Mr. Ambassador, we sure appreciate your time, appreciate your insights into this as well, too. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Up to Date is produced by Zach Wilson, Reginald David, Elizabeth Ruiz, Zach Perez, and Hannah Cole. Our intern is Claudia Brancard. Our announcer and engineer is Paul Nakatura. Our theme music is composed and performed by the great Bobby Watson. I'm Steve Kraske. Thanks for listening. Hollywood writers are obsessed with the concept of an asteroid heading towards Earth and destroying civilization. But is this something we really should be worried about? I'm Kate the Chemist, and on my podcast, Seeking a Scientist, we meet the mastermind behind a real-life mission to divert the path of an asteroid. Subscribe to Seeking a Scientist, made possible by the Starris Institute.